Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome. I shall be very brief. Um, I'm Paul Goodwin, the editor of Conservative Home. I do want to begin by mediating through you an apology to all the people outside who couldn't get in. And sorry about the limited space. This is the only room we could get. Uh, and we really would need a larger one for this con home event with the UK in a changing Europe. Uh, and as you're very w welcome here. Uh, I don't know whether in your academic work you're used to all these huge queues outside the door <laughs> waiting to hear what you've got to say. Uh, but such is the sort of curiosity to hear from you at this conference that we really are having to keep them out. Jacob, as you're well aware, your role is, of course, more incidental. But <laughs> um, an old friend of Conservative Home, um, in whose surveys you have seen you pop up from time to time. Um, we're delighted to see you. Without any more from me, I'm going to vanish over here and allow you both to uh, discuss Brexit and what happens next. Thank you, Paul. It does remind me of my first year lecture on voting systems, which is always as packed as this, I can assure you. Uh, firstly, let me extend my thanks to Conservative Home, who, as in the last couple of years when we've worked with them, have just been a joy as ever, and it's a real pleasure to work with them, and I hope we can keep on doing so. Secondly, let me thank you, Mr. Rees-Mogg, for agreeing to do this. The format, insofar as we have a fixed format, is as follows. We're going to have a conversation about Brexit following which I will try and open things up to you people for questions. Uh, we have a firm endpoint of 7.30, uh, so we'll try and cram in as much as possible before then. So without further ado, if we can start off. I mean, the first question I have for you, I suppose, is were you born a Eurosceptic or did it come upon you for a particular reason? <laughs> um, no, I, I mean, I was always very close to my father's political views, and in the 1970s, he was quite a strong supporter of what was then the European Economic Community uh, for two main reasons. One, seeing it as essentially a trading bloc, but secondly, uh, he was concerned uh, that um, it would be a constraint on a real socialist government, and that being inside a bloc was therefore potentially beneficial uh, in that regard. Um, I was only six at the time of the referendum in 1975, so wasn't playing a very direct role or studying the position very carefully, so it came to my views later. Uh, but the position I came to was very much dependent on democracy and the right of people to choose how to be governed. And so to that extent, my Euroscepticism became inevitable that the country has shown no sign of wanting to hand over its lawmaking abilities uh, to an international body. And the <coughs> referendum reflected that. And the ultimate arbiters of what goes on in this country must be the British people. Okay, I mean, I'm, I'm going to press you a little bit. I mean, I'm going to sort of do this chronologically, so talk a little bit about the campaign before coming up to the, the, the present day. But just on this, because we did our event last year and it was a conversation with Liam Fox, and he was very clear that his Euroscepticism became a marked sort of part of his politics at the point of Maastricht, and that before that, he was relatively happy. And given the debates we're having about the single market now, that's quite an important distinction. So are you saying that even before Maastricht, your views would be as they are? Well, I wouldn't say my views were fully formed before Maastricht. Maastricht comes in when I'm about 20, and so when I'm thinking about these issues, I haven't come to a clear view on the Single European Act, which is passed, I think, when I'm a 17-year-old. And so I'm an interested observer I wouldn't claim that I've got a fully formed view uh, of the European community as it, as it then was. 
Um, Maastricht is important um, because it takes the EU that much further, and with the development of single currency, common foreign defence policy, um, the justice and home affairs pillars as well, the EU becomes a much more obviously a political single state rather than the community of states that many people were happier to live with. I think when you look at the single market in the context of Maastricht, you realise that it's an essential building block rather than something entirely separate that you can just take away. And so from that period you were in favour of at least asking the British people the question via a referendum, essentially? Uh, yes, I supported uh, a referendum on the Maastricht Treaty. I think that once the Danes had had one and said no. And the reaction to the Danish no essentially gave the game away as to what the European Union was up to. But it didn't matter whether people voted for this or not. It was going ahead, and votes were going to be ignored. So the response to Denmark over Maastricht is, I think, very important in making people who are fundamentally Democrats very suspicious of what's going on at the EU level. Okay. Just as a point, Paul, the next time we do an event, if we can do it with someone who's older than me, otherwise I keep feeling a bit depressed when I hear how young people were <laughs> at times of these major treaties. But uh, if, if we can turn now to the campaign, the referendum campaign itself, because, I mean, it's still obviously a very hot topic. Uh, and it strikes me that there are, there are two major criticisms you hear about the referendum, uh, generally, of course, from those who are unhappy with the results. The first, if we can take this first, is that it is simply ridiculous to solve a complicated political question via a, 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 a sort of yes-no answer. That is to say, even on the surface, there are several ways to do Brexit. So what you were doing was sticking four or five answers into a binary choice, and that is unsatisfactory. So as a minimum, we should let people vote on the deal. Well, the argument that the people didn't know enough is the argument of totalitarians throughout the ages, that um, surely this applies to general elections when people are voting on 100-page manifestos, bits of which they will have read, bits of which they won't read. They have to take a broad spread of views to decide which party to support. They have to take into account the local candidate and whether they like all the local candidates' views and so on and so forth. And there is an hostility to democracy of those who lose. And they think, particularly the socialists think, that the man in Whitehall really does know best. As um, Douglas Jay said in 1947, it underpins everything that they believe in and their whole approach to Brexit, that the, the um, clever people in Islington, or wherever they happen to reside, know what in the best interests of the nation in a way that the British people don't. Now, the difficulty with the second referendum is what is the uh, result of a no vote? of the second referendum, if the British people say we don't like the terms of the deal, does no reverse the second referendum or does it simply say no to the deal? So you've got to then determine what you're voting on and why should we vote a second time for something on which we have had a clear result that some people don't like? That seems to me to be an undermining of democracy. Just for the record and for the cameras, the clever people are from Wakefield. Uh, just going back to that, are you a fan of referendums in general? Because I suppose the big difference between the general election and the referendum is <coughs> general elections happen every five years maximum, whereas a referendum is forever. Well, I'm in favour of the um, evolving British constitution, which I think is an object of great beauty and success. And in that, things come into it, and they come into it almost invariably uh, as a response to a political crisis, political pressure. And I mean, where do you want to start? But you can start with Magna Carta as a response to an immediate political crisis. 
Um, the calling of uh, borough members in 1265 is a response to an immediate political crisis, 1688, on, 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 we can go. It is not a written out, um, thought through constitution, it's an evolutionary constitution. And I think referendums are becoming an important part of that in response to constitutional issues. So, I think it would now be wrong to have a fundamental reform of the House of Lords without a referendum. I think the power to determine the structures of the Constitution lies with the British people, and the Parliament operates within a five-year time frame or shorter, subject to the Fixed-Term Parliament Act requirements, uh, and then has to hand back the Constitution intact. And I think it's very healthy, because um, Tony Blair had worked out that with a large majority you could do whatever you liked to the British Constitution and throw it all up in the air and see where the pieces fell. And that was not very satisfactory. So the evolving theory of referendums is, I think, very important and one I support. Turns out we both did history at Oxford, though I was significantly before your time, as it turns out. But there are people looking at history who say that ultimately referendum is the tool of the dictator. Um, but well, lots uh, of tools can be tools of dictatorship. That. Uh, Parliament was the tool of a dictator under Oliver Cromwell when he stopped MPs turning up to vote. And so you have the abuse of a democratic body by a totalitarian figure. That's wrong to blame the referendum for being um, undemocratic in those circumstances or when used by dictators. It's the dictator who is undemocratic and is using his power malevolently uh, in, in a way that is damaging the Constitution. It's not the referendum itself. Parliament can be used in that way. Laws can be used in that way. Uh, and as, as you think of the penal laws against Catholics, which um, were pretty totalitarian up until uh, 1829 and not something we would pass in this country today, done by uh, and with enthusiasm by the House of Commons. So I, I, I don't think you can blame the structures in, in that sense for the use people put them to. Okay. The other criticism of the referendum that you hear quite frequently is that it was flawed because the outcome was based on lies. That is, in some sense, the campaign didn't, didn't clear the bar that proper democratic contest should clear. Well, um, I agree with that. It was the most shockingly dishonest uh, campaign by the Treasury and the Bank of England <laughs> and by Her Majesty's Government. Um, to Democrats because the power of the state was used to try and sway the result and pervert it. And anyone who doesn't believe me should look at the Treasury's forecast for what would happen not in the event of us leaving, but in the event of a vote to leave. What they were saying would happen to unemployment, the need for uh, an emergency budget. It was all dishonest rubbish. It wasn't even honest rubbish. There's no credibility to it at all. And the Treasury was besmirched and its reputation still suffers from this because it was used as a political tool, and the great organs of state were used in this way, and that was a deep disgrace. And the fact that the British people had the courage against that pressure, against that tempted totalitarianism, shows what a fine people the British people are. I'm going to come back to the Treasury forecast in a while, if that's okay, but let me just ask you another question on this. Was £350 million per week a lie? Um, it wasn't a lie, but it's not a figure that I like. Um, the the uh, Jesuits in the 17th century wrote great books on the art of um, dissembling. And if you look at the coronation oath that has to be, had to be taken by uh, William and Mary, it goes on and on and on saying the words are being used in the ordinary sense of the words and so on and so forth to try and stop this effort of dissembling. 
The 350 million is a figure that you can justify. You can get to a figure of 350 million. Um, I prefer not to. I prefer to use the net figure because I think it's more robust. But there is a difference between spinning a figure and a straightforward lie. The Treasury told straightforward lies. Uh, the 350 million is a figure I would not have used, and I didn't use in the campaigning I did, uh, but it is one that you can justify. I know that in the Tim Shipman book, he says that several Conservative MPs expressed their disquiet to Dominic Cummings about that figure. And over the uh, last couple of days, I was doing a bit of work preparing for this. So I picked up the Shipman book and then realised to my horror it didn't have an index, uh, at which point I kind of gave up because it's so long. Were you one of those people? Um, I did go and see Vade leave and discuss whether the figure was the best figure to use. I didn't speak to Dominic Cummings. Were you happy with the way the campaign was conducted by Vote Leave as a, as a whole? I thought as a whole Vote Leave did a brilliant job. You, you can always uh, <coughs> pick holes with um, campaigns. Sometimes it's easier than on other occasions, and to say, uh, any specific campaigns one might dislike. Um, but no, I thought Vote Leave and Leave um, UK, the other group, both campaigned very effectively, and the combination of the two campaigns was very powerful. It, it brought two different groups together to vote for Brexit, and they both appealed to their own uh, voters. So no, I think the campaign was uh, well run, and they by accident on design well coordinated. Okay, excellent. I mean, we'll come back again to those two groups, because I think that's pertinent to the issue of how you create a Brexit that appeals to both of them, which I think is, a, is, is an issue we have to confront. But turning now to what has happened since the referendum, and a very simple question to start with, which is how do you think the Prime Minister has handled Brexit to date? I think the Prime Minister is a heroine of 10,000 years, and I admire everything, every waking breath of the Prime Minister, our great leader. Um, uh, I think that she was right to say Brexit means Brexit. That gave us a clear understanding of what she was doing. I think the speech she made at the party conference a year ago clearly set that out and um, made the priorities that we, we were going to have observable. And I think the Lancaster House speech set out uh, the way to approach Brexit uh, effectively. I have more doubts about the um, Florence speech because more from a tactical point of view than an overall point of view, I'm not sure that we want to be giving away our best cards to the European Union before they moved at all. Uh, I think we have given the impression to the EU that if it is obdurate, it will get more concessions from us. And I think we should be obdurate back. But that is a um, tactic of negotiation rather than a disagreement with uh, the details of what is being proposed. Do you think it was right to frame the general election in terms of Brexit as she did? It was the general election framed in that way? I mean, what was it was framed by, I mean, when she called it, it was very much framed in that way. I mean, we I, I, I thought it was framed by being nasty to old people and taking away all their money, <laughs> but um, that sounds wrong. <laughs> all right, so turning, turning to this, the Article 50 issue, which you've just touched on, I mean, there are two big issues here, I suppose. Well, three, we'll get back to the third later. One is the money, the, the other is EU citizens. Do you accept that we will have to pay something to the European Union? Uh, no, I don't. This is a very important point. There's a brilliant report by the House of Lords uh, European Scrutiny <coughs> Committee from earlier this year where they included their legal advisers' full advice, and it's unprecedented for a parliamentary report to do this. And bear in mind that the House of Lords Scrutiny Committee, unlike the Commons Scrutiny Committee, is not made up of Eurosceptics. It's more pro-European than Eurosceptic. So this, I think, gives real credibility to the report, and it, importantly, 
in the six months or so since it was published, it hasn't been challenged by anybody. It, it, there's been no suggestion that it's got it wrong. And what it sets out is that we have no obligation under UK, international or EU law to make any payment of any kind whatsoever if we leave under the terms of Article 50 without a deal. And the reason for that is very straightforward. That the 1968 Vienna Convention on the Interpretation of Treaties says that um, if you leave a multinational organization, you will have a liability for its um, debts and for its commitments unless the method of leaving is set out in the treaty establishing the organization. And because Article 50 sets out the method of leaving, that is after two years, you just leave, full stop, that's the end, um, that overrides the provisions of the Vienna Convention, and therefore we leave without anything. And that's very important because it's such a strong opening negotiating point. We own nothing. So you then face the situation that we want to get a deal with the EU and they want our money. And money becomes our strongest bargaining card. It's why I think in the Florence speech it was a mistake to start saying we accepted that we owed money, when in a legal sense we don't. It's too early to be doing that until we know what we're getting in return. Okay, so moving away from a legal sense, I mean this is a slightly odd word to use I suppose, but in a moral sense, having signed up to European Union budgets, uh, on the un well, in the sense that even if it's just the annual budget. Look, Her Majesty's government has no ability to spend any money other than that passed by Parliament allowing it to be spent. Uh, there is no pot of money that the Prime Minister, the Chancellor Exchequer, can spend because he thinks it's a nice charitable thing to do. That's just not how our constitution works. So any, any payment needs to be based in law. It can't just be based in we feel we're kind-hearted people and we don't want to make life difficult for the EU. So, we need to get something in return for that money, and Parliament needs to agree to it, because the basic legal position is in our law as well as EU law, that we would own nothing. And I'm not against a payment. I'm not against, at the end of it, saying we've got complete free trade with the European Union, we've got uh, an ability to um, carry on using the health service in Europe, we belong to Erasmus, we belong to Horizon 2020, all sorts of things that we want to do, uh, we belong to Europol, all of that and therefore we will make a contribution in respect of that. It's all perfectly reasonable. But it's a very strong starting point to say we have no legal obligation to do anything. And I don't think taxpayers' money can properly be spent because the government thinks it would be a kindly thing to do. That's not what taxpayers have authorised the government to do. Are we not on the back foot because there's a ticking clock? No, no, the, the um, uh, tick-tock goes the clock in our favour. Because come March 2019, the EU's run out of money. It's suddenly £20 billion short, and it needs it from us. Um, and they either have to get the Germans to pay more, or they have to uh, build fewer motorways uh, in Eastern Europe, or whatever it is. Oh, no, no. Um, that's a really strong position for us, because with no deal, we pay them not a brass farthing. And that is huge strength in our position. So, no, the Article 50 was written, and we know this, because the person who wrote it said so. Uh, to make it difficult for the leaving country. But it missed this point on money. And once the money point was clearly legally established, the advantage flipped from the EU to the departing state. So when you say you're willing, you're not opposed to the idea of paying, you're, oppo you're not opposed to the idea of paying for things we get in the future. The issue, the, the issue you have is with paying for liabilities from the past. It's, it's a negotiation, so there may be um, an element of goodwill that we want to pay for. 
not unreasonable to pay for an element of goodwill as long as that's what you're doing and that's your clear understanding. I think the problem with saying we have a moral obligation implies that we should pay something even if we get nothing in return. And if we crash out without any deal, we should not give the European Union a penny, absolutely nothing. And that must be the bottom line of our negotiation. And actually, I think that is implicit in Florence, uh, even though it wasn't specifically stated. The Prime Minister said she understood that we would pay this uh, money for the next two years, uh, but this was, as far as I could tell from the speech, um, dependent upon a deal. But everyone accepts that, don't they? If we crash out without a deal, there's no one saying we should crash out without a deal and still write them a cheque. I mean, that would be absurd. Well, I'm glad you say that, but I think it's a point worth emphasising because they need to be clear in that that it is overwhelmingly in their interests to have a deal. And therefore, they should be making compromises. And so far, only we've made compromises. And that seems to me not a very great way to be going through negotiation at the moment. The other, the other sticking point at the moment in these negotiations that I want to touch on now is that of the rights of EU citizens. What rights should they enjoy, the ones who are already here in the United Kingdom, after we leave? In my view, anyone who is lawfully here should have exactly the same rights as I have. They should have full rights as if they were um, British citizens, subjects of Her Majesty, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, but I don't think they should be better rights. I don't think they should be worse, but I don't think they should be better. I think it's really important in the discussion on EU member state citizens who are living here to remember that they came here legally under UK law. They have done something really quite brave. A lot of people have come from countries hundreds of miles away to a land where they don't speak the language, to take on jobs that are quite difficult to do uh, and involve a great deal of hard work. These are really entrepreneurial, committed people. And I think there we do have a moral duty. It doesn't cost us any money. It's not a financial duty, but to treat them fairly and clearly and to say you will have identical rights to British passport holders. And actually, if you want to get a British passport, we'll make it extremely easy for you. But we shouldn't be out to pass retrospective legislation making life difficult for people who came here legally and have contributed a great deal to this country. Do you think they should have the right to vote then? Um, if they're Cambridge citizens, they can have the right to vote. They, have, they can maintain the right to vote uh, in, in local elections. I would see no great problem with giving them the right to vote uh, if they'd been here for the normal amount of time required to get the vote, which I think is only about four years. It's not a very long period. Do you understand the concern of the European Union about their future status? No, I think the EU's position is ridiculous and it's uh, like colonial power demanding its citizens are treated better. It's like the rows they have in Japan every so often when American soldiers find they're exempt from Japanese law uh, because they're stationed at a, an American base. This is quite outrageous uh, and imperialist and we must reject it. Right, let me pretend to be the European Union for a moment here and make their case. I mean, their case, as I understand it, is this. We need to ensure that our citizens in the United Kingdom enjoy the rights they enjoyed prior to Brexit. Now, we have, there are two ways of doing this. The way the British government suggests, which is that we will pass legislation into domestic law which will be enforced by our courts. The problem from the European perspective is we, you know, we're proud of the fact that one parliament can't bind the next, and so they want an external authority to ensure those rights are maintained it's completely absurd. All our rights as British citizens will evolve over the next 50, 100 years, as they have evolved over the last 50, 100 years, the voting age went down from 21 to 18 and so on. And that will affect everybody. Are we going to say that if the voting age went down to 16, this wouldn't apply to EU citizens because their rights are set in aspect? 
They get improvements in rights, and they'll get changes in rights. <coughs> if we need to change the law to suspend habeas corpus, which we've done uh, in previous, we did during the Napoleonic Wars, and then at other times when there's been a great fear um, of terror on the mainland, one kind or another, um, and we obviously did it in, in the Second World War uh, through a different mechanism. If we were to do that, it would be absurd to say uh, we're very worried about terrorist threat, we're suspending habeas corpus for a period, uh, but not if you're an EU national. They, they have to take the rough with the smooth in that. They, the, the EU law ceases to run in this country once we've left, and they will get the improvement in rights that UK citizens will get, and they will get the changes in rights that UK citizens will get. And that's it. And they cannot expect anything different. But you're in no position to guarantee that. What if a future British Parliament decides to pass a law saying those EU citizens who were here before the referendum, who under previous parliaments were guaranteed their rights, we hereby take away some of their rights. You, you're in no position to say that won't happen. Well, the Parliament can do anything, but Parliament doesn't normally do completely stupid things. Um, you, you have to have some confidence in our democracy to be sensible and fair uh, and, and just, which it normally, and not invariably, I accept normally is. And if we did that, the EU would be able to retaliate by saying, well, if you're doing that to our citizens, we're not going to buy your goods. So there are things you can do at the international level if you feel that your citizens uh, are being badly treated. And to put it at extreme, remember the Don Pacifico affair. Uh, and Palmerston sent off a gunboat because he thought poor old Don Pacifico hadn't been fairly treated by the Greek government in his aim for compensation. Uh, and the Greek government paid out, I think, about £8,000 in the end. Um, uh, and the EU, though I doubt they would want to get that far, are entitled to protect their citizens through normal diplomatic means and through trade sanctions if they felt they were being really badly affected. But we cannot have two citizenships in the United Kingdom. That's uh, simply um, uh, wrong in my view. Even if we make the rights of EU citizens and the rights of UK citizens the same, as a guarantee in the future, could you see yourself accepting even some kind of hybrid legal mechanism as a backstop? Even if you, I mean, I know the European Union is insisting on the European Court of Justice, and I see that there are loads of problems inherent in that. But if they suggested, okay, look, just to reassure ourselves that the worst case can't happen, we will set up some sort of bespoke legal body that is there. And it's completely pointless because that bespoke legal, legal body would be subject to Parliament have any action in this country. Still depends on the same thing that, that uh, assuming Parliament cannot bind its successors. How much you say this is superior law, this is law subject to an international body, you can repeal the law that gives it that authority. And that's the basic of the British Constitution. I see no reason for us to change fundamentally the British Constitution uh, to appease uh, Monsieur Barnier on this point. But I just think he's wrong. I think we are offering something really generous and positive. You know, I think to be a British citizen is the best thing in the world to be. It's a fabulous thing to be. And we're saying lots and lots of non-British citizens, you can be a British citizen, they should be dancing in the streets. <laughs> Why should they be dancing in the streets if that means renouncing their own citizenship? Because That's we allow people to maintain dual citizenship in this country, so they can keep their, the, the Dutch, I think, aren't allowed to, under Dutch law, that's not a matter for me. That's a matter for the government in Holland. Well, it's a matter for you in the sense that we're negotiating with a bunch of countries that includes the Dutch. And so actually just saying you could become a British citizen is not... No, but if we're giving them the same rights as British citizens, then they become de facto British citizens, and they can keep their Dutch passport. And that's fine. I, do, I think we're being really generous about that. We're not demanding that they all become British citizens, though I would happily make that open to them. Okay, so mo moving on from that, I want to talk briefly about... Uh transition and the row that seems to be happening about that. So just to kick us off on this, who do you agree with, the Chancellor or the Foreign Secretary? 
Well, I, I think that they are completely united um, in everything that they say. They are um, joined at the hip um, in so many ways. Um, uh, I, I think the Foreign Secretary's speech uh, was an extremely helpful reiteration of government policy, and I think it's very reassuring that senior ministers are backing government policy. I mean, you would expect them to, but some don't always do it. But um, Boris Johnson does, and that's terrific. When did government policy become two years, not a second more? Because I don't recall that line in the Florence speech. Um, well, uh, to, uh, the um, transition wasn't in the Lancaster House speech, which is the authoritative version. And the authoritative version is the Prime Minister saying Brexit means Brexit. And once you start wandering off into an in endless um, transition, <coughs> Brexit ceases to mean Brexit. So uh, Boris Johnson is ensuring that uh, the Prime Minister's phrases are properly understood and stuck to. I think this is thoroughly admirable. I don't understand how we get to decide which of the Prime Minister's speeches is the authoritative one, if they're contradictory. Uh, well, well um, careful exegesis of the speeches reveals uh, the truth, I think. Um, I, that I don't think they are that contradictory. I think the proposal for transition has come in, um, but we will have left by March 2019. And there are certain tests for this. Uh, if we haven't left the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice, we haven't left the European Union. If we are subject to new regulations that come in from the European Union, we haven't left the European Union. Uh, if we are in a situation where free movement of people still applies uh, and is justiciable in the European Court of Justice, we have not left the European Union. And that would completely undermine the Prime Minister's speech at Lancaster House. And I see no indication that that's what the Prime Minister is intending to do. Uh, and if she is intending to do that, she wouldn't deserve support to do it. Do you think Norway is a member of the European Union? Uh, Norway is not a member of the European Union. But they are subject, essentially, to the rulings of the European Court. They accept free movement. They are not technically subject to the rulings of the European Court of Justice. Okay, but that's, that's a legal nicety. I mean, it is a legal nicety, and I would not accept it as a position for the United Kingdom. I think they are too close uh, to uh, control by the European Court of Justice. And I think the proposal made by the um, head of the um, EFTA Court uh, was entirely unsatisfactory to the United Kingdom because it basically means you take EU regulations and you take ECJ uh, uh, jurisdiction and you then voluntarily apply it, but it's not really voluntary. So I, I don't think that's an answer for us. Um, uh, and Norway's got into this position because Norwegian voters consistently vote not to join the European Union and their politicians are all desperate to squeeze them in. And so their politicians have um, done as much as they can to... Uh, undermine the referendum results in, in Norway. And I don't want to see that happen in the UK. But imagine, if you will, a hypothetical situation. So it's sort of summer of next year. We've started trade talks on principles with the European Union, and they are, in fact, going fantastically well. Okay, Everything's going along swimmingly. It's a world full of cakes and eating cakes that's being offered to us. And actually... The issue is, this is going to take us 18 months, two months, two years, two and a half years longer to, to dot the I's and cross the T's because trade is complicated. Are you really saying under those circumstances you would say, you would, you would say no to a transitional deal that involved the jurisdiction of the ECJ if the prize was being outside with a fantastic deal and free and clear? Um, yes, because I wouldn't believe it. Um, we would be told that this was the prize and it was about to happen and we would find we stayed under the ECJ and that the prize never materialised. I'm afraid the history of the um, European Union negotiating trade deals is so long and slothful that we need to have that done before we've agreed any payment, before we've agreed the final deal, because if we haven't agreed it by March 2019, it might be March 2029 before we have any agree agreement or March 
2039. Uh, and uh, if you look how slow they've been uh, in negotiating um, with the US, with Japan, with Canada, it's a pretty sorry tale. We need to do it within two years, within a two-year time frame. We need to have a deal by the time we go, or else we will not get a deal in any reasonable time frame. That's the time pressure. We have the money until then, which they need, and we should hold on to it to do a contingent deal where we pay them money for another couple of years. We'd never get that money back if in 2025 we still hadn't done a deal. We wouldn't be able to say, where's our 18, 20 billion? They just say, oh, well, we've spent that now, it's too bad. So no, 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 these agreements have to run together, they have to be completed together, and anything else would completely undermine our negotiating position. But the European Union has never before negotiated with an economy the size of Britain that was its neighbour, only 20 miles distant. So don't you think we actually could be in a situation of getting a very, very good trade deal, which just required time? I do think we require time. Uh, if you look at these European negotiations, they always run to the deadline and the deadline focuses the minds, um, uh, and that that's how the EU works. I, I think the general rule that work expands to fill the time available applies particularly to trade negotiations, which normally have an endless time in which they can happen, and you can then row about palms and cheese and all this sort of trivial stuff. Uh, whereas when you've got a deadline, that really focuses the mind and you deal with the important things. So no, I think the deadline is helpful, I think it focuses the mind, and it is perfectly possible. Uh, at the point at which we leave, we meet all EU requirements and regulations. It, it, all we've got to work out is what happens with divergence, and how do we do that? And I don't think that's too difficult, um, because with divergence, we will be wanting to maintain good standards in the United Kingdom, so you have joint recognition of standards. And a lot of these standards are set internationally above the EU anyway, as you know. But equally, a lot of international standards are based on cutting and pasting EU standards. Um, well, a lot of international organisations uh, set standards which then get taken by the EU and then, I mean, it does become slightly circular yeah. as to where they, where they come from. But the great advantage of being out is that we then have a seat on these international bodies and so rather than being 127th, uh, we are representing ourselves in groups that act by unanimity rather than by qualified majority voting. It's a much better position for the British government to be in. You once, I think, said, and obviously correct me if you didn't and I'm getting this wrong, that the EU has lots to lose from a disorderly British exit, while we have relatively little to gain from an orderly one. Can you expand on that for me? Um, I certainly said the, the first half, um, that uh, if we leave in a disorderly way and we apply tariffs to the Republic of Ireland, the Republic of Ireland's economy goes into tailspin. But I don't want to do that. I think we have such a strong connection with the Republic of Ireland that it would not be in the UK's interest uh, to, to, to do that. Um, but if we put 70% tariffs on Irish beef, which we buy about £800 million a year, um, which is pretty sizable in the context of the Irish economy. And that has a very big effect uh, on, on the Irish economy. And the other side of it is they're suddenly £18 to £20 billion short in their budget for the ensuing years, money that they've already earmarked for expenditure. So there's a really big problems for you to deal with. Uh, what, what, what happens to us? Well, 13% um, of businesses trade with the EU, or 30% of our uh, uh, total economy is, is EU trade. Um, there could conceivably be some tariffs on some parts of that. Um, there are other mechanisms for getting trade through borders, which we use in many other circumstances, and the EU needs a lot of the things it buys for us for its um, routine manufacturing. And so it is, yes, it would be um, marginally uncomfortable for a short time, 
uh, for some manufacturing industries, but not for a huge number. So I think they have much more to lose than we do from a disorderly exit. So let me just be clear, before we, I'm going to get into this in a bit more detail in a moment. Is your main argument that the EU wouldn't let this happen because they'd be mad to? Oh no, because I can't guess that, can I? The EU may be mad. I've been spending the last 20 years saying the EU is mad. So, no, 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 no. The, the one thing I've never been able to say, um, and didn't say in the campaign, and is a, a point that people like me cannot answer, is what do we do if the EU is completely irrational? Well, it just reminds us why it's such a good idea to leave, because it's, um, if, if an organisation that you're leaving uh, decides to kneecap you as you leave, it's usually the mafia. And that, therefore, it, 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 if it behaves irrationally, that, in a sense, is not predictable by us. Is it in its interest to do that? Uh, no, it isn't. Uh, but um, I, I couldn't possibly tell you whether they will uh, do something that I would think unwise. You use the figure 13% of our economy is trade with the European Union, but it is still, if you look at it in terms of our trade, our largest trading partner. Well, that's if you assume they're all taken as one, um, uh, and you're saying that the EU is, is one country. If you want to do that, we're the largest um, customer of the EU once we leave. So, it, you know, it takes two to tango. I, I, um, and the, as, in terms of an individual country, the United States is our largest trading partner with whom we have no trade deal. But in which so, case... So I wouldn't be too worried about these trade deals. So you can trade with people without trade deals. But in which case, then, you wouldn't use the argument that they need us more than we need them, because that, again, is taking the EU as an aggregate. In, in, individual countries need us very dramatically. That's why I mentioned Ireland. And they need us because of our money. There's a real problem for the EU if it suddenly has a gap in its budget of £18 billion. Pounds. No, no, that, that I think everyone agrees. Oh, well, so, so that's the EU as such. And then you look at the, at, at the individual countries uh, and, and what we uh, import from them. And because we have such a big um, a trade deficit with the European Union, there are specific industries dotted across the EU that would be particularly badly harmed um, by our um, withdrawing and applying tariffs. Do you not think that leaving the single market and the currency union would harm our economy? Well, we're not in the currency union. Customs not the customs union, sorry, the customs union. No, no, we must get out of the customs union. Customs union, this is the real gain of leaving. It's so important, uh, and we need to be putting the argument as to why Conservatives help everybody in this country. And the customs union is a producer racket. It puts up prices for consumers, and it puts up prices for the poorest consumers most. The biggest tariff areas under the customs union are food, clothing, and footwear. And the largest proportion of people's income spent on those three categories is by the poorest in our society. We can import more cheaply from the rest of the world, provide people with just as high, if not higher, standards, and really improve their standard of living um, because the cost of living will go down, particularly for the poorest in society. So getting out of customs union is essential, and we should be out of it on day one. I see no advantage in, in staying in. In terms of the single market, the single market is the single regulatory ramp. Um, if you look at what's happening in financial services with MIFID 2, uh, to place a single trade in financial services, you're now going to have to fill out 65 pieces of information uh, thanks to the EU. Um, people like me who set up a financial services business in um, 2007, it simply makes the cost of doing business much higher. It's fine for the big players, the established players, because they've got all the resources to do it. But it makes it much harder for competitors to get in because they have this dead weight cost of um, excessive regulation. And we need to be moving away from that. We need sensible, intelligent regulation, not anti-competitive regulation that helps incumbents, helps producers, and is against consumers. So both the single market 
uh, and on the customs union, I'm for the consumer rather than the producer. I'm not in favour of the oligopolist. Okay, I want to come back to you on, on quite a lot of this, if that's okay. On, on your lattermost point, which is helping the big firms rather than the small firms, surely one of the unique strengths of the European Union is that small companies have redressed to law directly against foreign governments if they're preventing entry to the market. Um, but they can't get the contract in the first place because the EU procurement processes are so cumbersome and so expensive that if you're a small company, you can hardly fill the forms out. No, no, I'm not talking about procurement. I'm just no, talking no, but about... You, but, but you're out of business if you can't procure. You, you, know, you can't apply for the contract in the first place. So you go out of business. It's a fat lot of use if you can then go to court 20 years later, you're passed. No, but I'm talking about private firms that are trading yeah. across borders in Europe, nothing to do with public procurement, whether, you know, back to the original Cassis de Dijon, selling your goods across numerous they, European they, they, markets. They can do that in free trade agreements if, if you want to have them. But that if you make it so difficult to do business and then give people redress in obscure areas, that doesn't help you do business. But the single market doesn't give redress in obscure areas. It gives direct recourse to the law yes. across a trans-European marketplace, even to no, small companies. But the business isn't set up because it can't meet the introductory regulations, which are a business cost. Um, it has to change things to meet new regulations. You've heard James Dyson say the effect it's had on at his business, where he sees the regulations coming in purely to help a German Hoover manufacturers at disadvantage of British Hoover manufacturers. You may be able to get redress. There's no good getting redress. You can't do the business in the first place because the regulations strangle business, strangle competitive, strangle innovation. But you accept, I imagine, that James Dyson isn't necessarily representative of the whole of British business. No, but what he says is very important because he's actually a very successful businessman who set up his business from scratch rather than somebody who's come in to run a business that somebody else set up, which is different. Let me just go back a little bit to the customs union, uh, and I take your points about reasons for leaving. I, actually, I noticed on my way in that the port of Dover has taken out an advert uh, at the Conservative Party conference warning about the dangers it will face if we don't get a decent deal with the European <coughs> Union because of queues, lack of infrastructure. But let's leave that to one side. Why, why should, well, no, that's okay. right. It's very important. Why should there be queues on our side of the border um, in, in Dover? We can let the things go out freely and we can let them come in freely. I mean, you've seen um, HMRC say so they want 5,000 more customs officers. Why? What are they going to do? If we're in favour of free trade and we let things come in, we don't need lots of people to um, check them. We're in favour of free trade. So only if we're going to apply tariffs and extra checks, we don't need to do that. So we can have fewer customs officers, not more. There's a very negative attitude to Brexit, to look at all these problems. There only be problems if we impose them on ourselves. Why should we do that? So... We're having no tariffs at all. I would, not be in favor, I would not be in favour of tariffs generally. We might want to use them as a negotiating tool to get free trade deals. But all tariffs do is put up the prices for consumers. Even if we're taking off our tar tariffs unilaterally, so everyone else maintains their tariffs and we just say we'll have zero. You won't put us at a competitive disadvantage? Uh, no, it won't. It puts a huge competitive advantage because the cost of goods in the UK will be much cheaper than anybody else in the anywhere else in the world. The input cost for businesses will be lower because they won't have to pay tariffs. Uh, the cost for consumers will be lower because they won't be um, paying tariffs. And our uh, comparative advantage in the areas uh, that we are best at will overcome the tariffs that are charged. I, mean, I, I think that the basic free trade argument is an extremely strong one. Why would Nissan or BMW continue to make cars in this country if they were paying tariffs every time their products crossed the border? Um, well, because the tariffs on cars uh, um, are just over 10%. Uh, and they've had a devalue in the pound that's considerably more than that. So tariffs are only one part of the overall economic picture. But given that we would have, to, there would be customs checks on the other side of the channel. 
agreed? Because the, the French aren't going to... We, we don't, in terms of customs checks, physical customs checks on non-EU goods are relatively few and far between. I think um, it's about 1% of things are actually physically inspected, and about 5% have a paper check. The H um, HMRC gave evidence to the Treasury Second Committee on this, and the um, precise figures will be uh, from, from that session. It's available publicly. Um, most goods coming in are not physically checked at the border. Uh, I, I think we sort of have this uh, idea um, fr from um, watching Whiskey Galore or something, that there are lots of customs officers always searching for every bit that comes in and wanting to stamp it. And that may have happened 100 years ago, but that's not how trade carries on. Most trade coming into this country from outside the EU uh, is cleared at the moment that it arrives, with paperwork having been completed before it gets here. So there's a very strong model for trade that um, has borders essentially as a tax point on the checkpoint. The main check at borders is to check for contraband, and that applies with EU trade just as much as non-EU trade anyway. But if you look at business surveys on the ease of doing business in Norway, what you find is an overwhelming pattern that it is difficult because having that border makes trade significantly slower and less predictable than it would be with a state that is in the customs union. So even if everything isn't checked, if you're dealing with companies that have just-in-time supply chains where they're working to deadlines, it will slow things down and make things less predictable, surely? Well, any of both sides want it to be more difficult, that it's perfectly possible to have very efficient free trade uh, between countries. And for goods coming in, that's entirely under our control. And why would we want to make it more difficult and complex? That wouldn't well, be in our interest. Now, if on the other side they want to make it more complex, we're coming back to our earlier question. If the EU is irrational and makes its industry less efficient, what can I do about it? The truth is nothing. But on our side, we can ensure that there's a completely free flow of goods into this country and that it's as efficient as it is now. That would be a matter of Parliament to legislate. And if we don't do it properly, ladies and gentlemen, you can come and say to me, why has Parliament mucked it up? But that's the great thing about leaving. It is our responsibility. And we keep on thinking in this discussion that we are still going to have to apply EU regulations even one, once we've left. We're going to have to behave as if we were still a member of the EU. And we're then going to have to treat EU imports to this country in the way we currently treat non-EU imports into this country. We won't, because it'll be up to us. Just touching on the... I mean, the first thing, let me just say on, on that, the European Union isn't going to follow our lead and scrap all its tariffs, which is why they're... No, it isn't, going, it isn't going to scrap its tariffs. Uh, I wouldn't expect it to, to do that. So there will be border formalities. Um, but well, it's not impossible that we get a free trade deal with the European Union as part mm -hmm. of this negotiation, and that would be a beneficial thing to have. I'm not saying I'm against free trade deals, uh, simply that we should go further anyway if we don't get them, because it's in our interest. It's in our selfish interest to make goods in this country cheaper for consumers. We should concentrate on consumer interest, not producer interest. Do you not recognise that the single market makes trade with the European Union far, far easier than it would otherwise be? Um, depends what area you're talking about. In financial services, it's made virtually no difference. So you don't think passporting has enhanced the ability of British financial uh, services firms to... Not at all, because most of the business we do, certainly speaking as an investment manager, has made virtually no difference to what we do at all, because most of what we do uh, is institutional, is wholesale business. Uh, Lloyds of London made a great song and dance about passporting and how essential it was, and it turned out to be about 6% of its business. It was nothing, and it's going to be 50 people. But during the referendum campaign, you would have thought that all of Lloyds of London business was passporting. But most of it's wholesale, and wholesale business doesn't need passporting. Why are so many financial institutions then registering their businesses on foreign stock markets now, preparing for Brexit? 
Um, well, people who have retail business want to have a, a secondary um, string to their bow. That's a perfectly sensible, rational thing to do. But the, if you look at most uh, financial services companies, uh, they have interests across the world anyway. And when I was uh, living in Hong Kong, I set up a, a Korean fund registered in um, at Dublin uh, with international investors managed from Hong Kong. But that's just how global cap capital flows work. And we're much too narrow in our focus in thinking that it all has to be done in one place. That's not how it happens. What about the, uh, we talked about Nissan and BMW, what about the American banks who have come to London specifically to benefit A, from London, but B, from the access to the European market that London provides them with as long as we're in the single market? It's not to do with the single market, it's to do with the fact that Islam predates the single market, that, that London has huge depth of expertise and capital, and that the capital is there uh, to invest in European projects, and does the EU want to cut itself off from one of the largest pools of capital in the world? That's the question. But are we simply not to believe that the interviews you see virtually day after day with the heads of some of these banks saying we're going to reconsider because outside of the single market it will have an impact on our business? Um, they're inevitably talking their book, that's what people in the city do. Okay. Moving on, I just want to, talk, I want to spend a little bit of time before I open it up talking about post-Brexit. And, and the world beyond, as it were. And let me just start off by saying, what are the three biggest advantages for you, for this country, of being outside of the European Union? Well, the first and biggest is democracy, uh, that it becomes our domestic responsibility as to how we govern ourselves. And ladies and gentlemen, if we do it badly, you can vote somebody else. And that is crucially important. Once again, British politicians will be held to account for the decisions that affect uh, the British nation. And that is of overwhelming importance. And I think part of the reason that turnouts and elections have been declining is the electorate realised that so many decisions were no longer being taken uh, at home. And so reinvigorating democracy is crucial to what I want to see happen uh, as we leave. Um, you want my next two points? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's for three, yeah. I'm normally, I'm yeah, not yeah, like, sorry. I'm giving yeah, no, that's the interview and letting me off. The Thank road. you. Uh, um, uh, the, 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 the second one is um, on, on the customs unions, I've already mentioned, is cheaper, cheaper goods. It, it's, it's repeating the 19th century trick of ensuring that you put the interests of consumer first. And that is very powerful because then people not only have more disposable income, which they can spend on other things, they can also save, that goes into banks, that gets reinvested, so the economic benefits from that uh, are gigantic. And then there's the regulatory issue. Uh, and we were in charge of our regulations. And there are going to be some regulations that we will decide uh, we think are completely unnecessary. And that's very powerful. That, of course, ties in with the democracy point. Now, I know you don't think this is the case, but just hypothetically again, if it were the case that Brexit has imposes an economic cost on our country, given what you said about sovereignty, is it one you'd be willing to pay? And what sort of price would you be willing to pay? Well, I think it's the wrong way of looking at the question, but <laughs> I may, because, look... If we leave the European Union and elect Jeremy Corbyn, the economic consequences of Brexit will be catastrophic. And he will be much more free to do lunatic things than he would be inside the European Union. If we have a Conservative government that believes in Conservative things and does Conservative things, the economic opportunities are enormous and we can be hugely prosperous. Now, you know, of course, I'm biased. I would say that, wouldn't I? But um, I expect most people in the room broadly believe that. So what we've got to do is persuade the British people that a Conservative government outside the European Union leads to economic prosperity because we've taken back control, and the risks of a Labour government are even greater. 
But do I believe that Jeremy Corbyn has the right, if he gets a majority in the House of Commons, to nationalise the railways? Well, yes, I do. That's what the British people want. I'm going to put the argument against it, and no doubt many of you will too. But if that's what the British people want, they're entitled to vote for it. And ultimately, I think the British electorate gets most things right most of the time, so they probably won't vote for it. That was fantastically impressive, but I'm going to try again. In, <laughs> I'm asking, yes, no. <laughs> well, you, you sort of have, but you sort of have because what I'm saying is, imagine a world, all things being equal, the, the government remains the same, and uh, an imaginary future where we're leaving the European Union, but it's going to cost us. Would your desire for democracy trump any economic cost? I think your economic success comes from your democracy, not the other way around. I think that um, economic success, the rule of law and democracy are the three great pillars of a prosperous society. I think it's why the United Kingdom uh, led the way, why the United States is so prosperous. It's why I think in 50 years' time, uh, the investments made in India will be more successful ultimately than the ones in China uh, because of the rule of law and democracy. And so I, I don't accept the premise of your question because although mistakes can be made by democratic governments, and electorates will want things that are unaffordable at certain times, uh, the long-run consequences of democratic accountable decision-making are better economic policy-making, because governments that muck it up get chucked out. And so it, doesn't, it won't arise like that. Um, and in the EU, well, what would you say to the Greeks about, aren't you lucky being in the European Union, and um, to the Italians and the Spanish and the Portuguese and the Irish? Uh, the European Union has such a record of kiboshing economies, uh, youth unemployment in these countries at scandalous levels. Uh, if the European Union were this great economic powerhouse, it might have been a different discussion in a referendum, but it's a failed economic model without any de democratic oversight to change it. What do you just say to the Greeks and the Italians and the Spanish, be in the European Union but don't join the Euro, like we were? No, I don't. I mean, they must do what they want. It's not really for me to advise other countries. I hate it when uh, Mr. Obama and people like that came out over and told us how to vote. So I, they're not. Um, it'd be hypocritical of me to tell them what they ought to do. We, we discussed earlier the fact that the European Union is going to keep tariffs. It wants, it'll have borders. It will have checks. Are you not worried about the implications of that for Northern Ireland? Oh, well, that's up to them. You see, we must, we, we must call their bluff on this. And I think this is really important. It's not up to us to decide what borders the Republic of Ireland government imposes in Ireland. It's up to the Republic of Ireland government. We will put no borders. We don't have to. We won't have to do what the European Union wants us to do once we've left. So then you're saying to the European Union in the negotiation, do you really want to force the Republic of Ireland to impose borders and to police them? Is that your policy? And then what does the Republic of Ireland say? Does it go along neatly with this and say, yes, I know, sir, three bags full, sir, to the European Commission? Or does it in fact say, well, we're not going to do this anyway. It takes the European Court. It's a matter of the EU. It's not a matter for us. We should leave the border open. I don't care if um, a few um, hundredweight of beef are smuggled across the Irish border. It may be honest to me or to the um, British people. Or if they take a bit of petrol back and forth and do, do something on the um, differential in duty. Make no odds to the British economy um, uh, or to um, the rule of law, anything, it will be fine. So we have no obligation to put any border up in Northern Ireland at all, full stop. So challenge the EU to do it if that's what they want to do. 
I just don't believe that they will, and I don't believe the Irish would agree to them doing it anyway. But in your imagined Brexit future where we have no tariffs and the EU has tariffs, this isn't a question of wanting a border, this is a question of you have to have a border if your tariff rates with third countries are going to diverge. That's a matter for the EU, we don't care. How do you it's, not our, it's, not our, it's not our job to police EU tariffs. Why, why, why should I want to collect so, tariffs for the European Union? I think it couldn't give two hoots. So your argument here is either you accept a zero tariff model or we screw the Northern Ireland? No, we don't screw Northern Ireland at all. It's a public file that would be in difficulty. Well, but also there is a, there is a political... Yeah, we, can, we can make sure Northern Ireland is looked after. Northern Ireland is part of the United Kingdom, a very important part of our country. But does the Republic of Ireland wish to impose strict border controls um, on Northern Ireland? And my guess is that it doesn't. So then the EU has to work out how it collects tariff in, tariffs in the Republic of Ireland. It's a matter for the European Union. Not a problem for us. We don't have to collect foreign countries' tariffs. Do you not accept that the political situation in Northern Ireland is quite a precarious one and that in the event that there is a border, that could become still more precarious? Well, that's the point you must make to the Irish government if they wish to impose one, because the British government isn't going to impose one. Okay. And the Irish government won't impose one. The Irish government is not going to be told what to do uh, when it has historically viewed the um, whole of Ireland as one country between two bits of what it views as one country. And if the EU is so clod-hopping that it tries to insist, I believe it will fail. And it's not for us to be the tax collector of the European Union. Okay, we've performed a bit of a minor miracle this evening because we've talked Brexit for 50 minutes and we haven't mentioned immigration once, but I think we should, if only in passing. How should we manage our immigration policy once we've left the European Union? Well, I think we should have a fair immigration policy for every country in the world. Uh, I always thought it was a mistake. Uh, to discriminate against our friends in India and um, New Zealand and the United States uh, in favour of people in um, uh, Bulgaria, France and Italy, um, th that we should have a fair system and we should have a system that is in the interest of the country at large and of our fellow citizens. And in that, I think we need to protect people um, who are carrying out uh, unskilled work, who face the greatest competition uh, from high-quality labour from outside the United Kingdom at lower prices, uh, but who are the most deprived in our country, and I think it is the job of the government to look after them. I don't think um, well-paid bankers in the City of London uh, need that protection. I think they want that protection. So people coming in to work in the City of London, we should be very generous with visas. Um, doctors coming in, we should be generous with visas, and surgeons, and so on, and scientists. Um, and there's been a particular problem from India, a lot of highly qualified people have found it very difficult to get in, even on holiday, let alone to come and work, uh, because we've had such an absurd skew to, to the European Union. But we have to make it harder at the unskilled level uh, to protect people living in impoverished circumstances in this country. See, now you're playing to my weaknesses with the India thing, but I'm going to leave that to one side. Uh, what evidence do you have that free movement from the European Union has pushed down wages of the least well-paid? Um, I think the issue there is as much as what the people in the least well-paid feel. And I think as a democratic politician, you have to respond to the mood of the nation. And that is the mood of voters. And if we want a harmonious society, politicians have to deal with the most serious concerns uh, of their electorates. And I think it is a serious concern of many voters up and down uh, the country. And so 
Um, there is mixed evidence, as you know. Mm -hmm. um, there's some that says it has had an effect on lowering wages, and there's some evidence that says it's had an overall positive economic effect, which has counteracted that. Um, it, that's not really the point. The point is that um, voters in the most deprived parts of the country are really worried and unsettled by this, and we should not follow policies that upset and um, disturb the equilibrium of our fellow citizens. It's not fair to them. When you're, you're talking about a fair system and equality between Europeans and non-Europeans, would that lead us to a situation where migration numbers are around the same as they are now, or would they be lower, would they be higher? Do you have a principled position on this at all, or is it what the economy needs? Um, I, I think it's a mix of what the economy needs and what the people of the United Kingdom want. Uh, I, I think there is a clash. I, I think the economy could take almost anybody that you wanted uh, to, to come in, I think, uh, with, with a strong economy and relatively high wages compared to the rest of the world. It's very strong demand. Um, and work expands to fill the number of labourers available. We, we, we know that. We, we know that there isn't just a number, you know, and all that. Um, but you have to look at the effects it has on society, which is why immigration needs to be managed and then prioritised. And how do you prioritise it? I, I think you start by prioritising families. I, I think an immigration system uh, that is difficult for families uh, is uh, an unfair immigration system, but you can't only prioritise families, there are other things you need to look at as well. You need to look at genuine refugees. Uh, dare I say, I'd rather take more than 20,000 people over four years from Syria. I think people fleeing um, in genuine fear of their life deserve sanctuary. I don't think everybody who feels it would be nice to come to the United Kingdom to earn more money does deserve sanctuary, and therefore you've got to make sure the people coming in are, are genuine. Do you think what you've just said about immigration is consistent with the reasons why so many people voted for Leave? Which, I mean, it meant for many people. I mean, you talked before about this coalition, and certainly the UKIP side, or the, the Vote Leave side of, uh, the Leave.eu side of the coalition, was very, very focused on reducing immigration. Um, I think it then is a matter of domestic political control. That's the central point. But once we've got control, people can vote for parties that will restrict immigration or will be laxer on immigration, but currently they can't do anything about it at all. Or they can't do anything about the EU element of it. And that's the undemocratic bit, that's the bit that caused the discontent because people didn't feel that they were getting responsiveness from the politicians that they expected. Okay, I'm going to just ask you a few quick questions before I open it up. I think you're on record as saying at one point that standards that are good enough for India should be good enough for us. Yes, it did. I, I did indeed say that, and I'd reiterate that, because my experience of investing in India is that <coughs> India has gone through an enormous process of increasing standards. Now, not all of them are applied. That's a different question. But there is a tendency in trade discussions to use standards as backdoor protectionism, and that's basically the point I'm making. It's not that um, I want people to be able to buy toys for their children that have lead paint on them, or fall apart with sharp pins in them or things like that. Of course I don't want that. But what I was trying to get at was I don't want standards used as a backdoor method of protectionism. And if you look at uh, the emerging markets that I've invested in over the years, they have been steadily and dramatically increasing the standards that they expected. I'll, I'll give you an example. I invested in a company uh, in India which had a factory in India and then bought a drug manufacturer in the United States. Um, it's factories in India and in the US were both inspected by the FDA. Its factory in the United States was shut down by the FDA for failing to meet standards. Its factory in India was allowed to continue. 
And we must just be too condescending about what emerging market economies are doing. They are doing really great things and increasing standards and have standards that are comparable with and in some cases better than the ones we've got. So just saying, oh, they're poor standards because they're an emerging market is simply no longer true. It was true 20 years ago, and we did have to stop importing some toys from China that were really dangerous for children and fell to pieces and they were going to choke on. But so much of that has, has changed, and it's now used basically as a form of backdoor protectionism. Do you see Brexit as a way of slashing regulation, including health and safety, workers' rights, employment protection? Uh, health and safety um, is one of those areas of regulation that has been enormously successful. The deaths in the workplace have collapsed since the 1974 um, Health and Safety Act. Uh, and it is perfectly reasonable for governments to set out regulations um, that keep people safe. I'm strongly in favour of that. Uh, the, the, the question is then whether this has been taken too far and whether there are some elements of regulation that become simply a cost for business rather than sensible regulation. And I think what you need is some flexibility to work out which is which. But the base of health and safety regulation, and indeed of employment regulations, uh, is, is very important. And um, just for the record, I, I have um, six children. I do not want them to have to go and uh, sweep chimneys, I'm, nor do I want anyone else's children to do this. There are very important um, workplace regulations to safeguard people. Uh, and we should welcome those. But there are some silly regulations too, and they crop up from time to time. Uh, and we should be more flexible in working out which are which. The, the, the city where I grew up voted leave quite strongly. But my sense is that people there voted leave for reasons very, very different to those which some people uh, in the south of England voted leave for. I mean, a lot of people there voted leave because they didn't like the way government policy was going, they didn't like austerity, they wanted a bigger state rather than a smaller state, they wanted greater protections rather than fewer protections. Can you reconcile, if you like, the Tory liberal leaders with that group of people? Well, it's all about taking back control because they can vote, you know, if you want to nationalise the railways, you ought to vote it leave. Because now it's possible, but now you've got to win a general election to do that. But the French and Germans have got nationalised railway systems and they're in. Uh, but it's the renationalisation that is the problem. Why? Um, because of the regulations that the EU now has. This is accepted by Jeremy Corbyn, so I'm, I'm, I'm quoting authority. Well, he's no authority. I mean, he's a reasonable authority. He's leader of the opposition. You know. Well, um, it's debated uh, by lawyers, and actually there's a fair consensus that renationalisation um, would not be stopped by EU well, law. There, 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 there are certainly things within a Labour programme that EU law would make more difficult. And, and the Jeremy Corbyn extreme left um, programme probably is easier to implement outside of the European Union, and I believe he's chosen the example of, in response to a question I hear John McDonnell, um, so that we need to be out of single market, and then John McDonnell uh, to renationalise the railways. So um, it's not really for me to uh, parse Labour policy. Um, I'm quite happy to take what they say on um, a degree of trust. That is very trusting. Uh, what, if anything, down the road, five, six years' time, would lead you to admit that you had been wrong about Brexit? I mean, can you imagine so? I mean, everyone has a point of view, but there must be a way of falsifying your claim. What, what world would we need to be living in for you to turn around to your constituents in the country and say, actually, that was a very bad mistake? Or even a bad mistake? Um, or even a small mistake? 
I think um, you need to divide this back up into what you were saying earlier. Uh, I think it is never a mistake to have more democracy. Um, and that that part of it, I can't see any circumstances where I would turn around and say I got it wrong to think that the British electorate should be in control of their own future. And that's my main reason for supporting Brexit. Um, it could turn out, uh, though pigs may fly, that the EU economy has 10 years of enormous boom and we stagnate because we make all the wrong choices. And then some people might say, well, it would have been better to hand over our democracy and let other people make decisions for us. Um, I doubt that, but if you wanted me to make a prediction, um, I, I think it would be um, not on the democratic side. But if the EU does much better than it currently looks if it's likely to do, uh, and we do really poorly, then you might say we'd have been better off um, shackled to the EU. Excellent. We've got about half an hour left, and I'll turn it over to you now for questions. If there was a guy who was had his hand up over this side somewhere, desperately halfway through. I don't know if he's still here, and he's thought. Yeah. Oh, hiya. Rob Button from Limburg. I, I, I knew the answer. Sorry, I saw your hair, but I didn't I know your hand. I didn't see your face. I, I was just when he was asking why there'd be queues at, at Dover. I, I know yeah. that one. Okay. But I mean, you sort of did it really, which is just the, the if there are border checks on the other side, eventually the queue gets back to this side. That's kind of how it works. Do you have a question while you've got the mic? No, no. I okay. Just, I, I just wanted to. That's have very honest of you. <laughs> uh, wherever's near you, so let's just do it. Hi, um, I work in the European Parliament for a Flemish member, and um, if you look at from our side, uh, the most important thing is that the UK does not get a better deal than they have now. I don't really care, but that's what most people think, because they think if, if the UK gets a better deal, then mm -hmm. other countries will leave. So I was wondering, um, what terms of, the, of a deal would you agree that needs to be less good than now? Are you happy to be prompt and answer while the microphone travels so we can get yes, as many certainly. questions? Okay. Um, I, I, mean, I think anything is better than being out of the European Union, so I don't see how we could get a worse deal than we've currently got. <laughs> so the, on that basis, um, there's nothing the EU can do that would be worse than currently being ruled by the Brussels bureaucracy. <laughs> the lady here is second row. You've obviously got a lot of followers here. You had a big queue outside, 40 minutes of waiting to make sure we are in. What they were here for me. No, we weren't, actually. <laughs> okay, all right. Much What needs to happen for you to be involved in these Brexit negotiations? I think you are the missing piece for us in yeah. our nation, yeah. and I think we need you absolutely instrumental. Not, not talking here about leadership of the country necessarily, or being prime minister, I'm not questioning that, but I want you absolutely forefront for us as a country. Thank you very much. I thought you were about to say that you thought I was the missing link, which wouldn't be quite so complimentary. Um, and thank you, it's not up to me. Um, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm very keen to make the arguments about what we ought to be doing and to make them in public forums and, and try and push for, for getting uh, the best deal that we want and sticking to what people voted for. I don't want to see any foot dragging. But thank you. I think I'm sorry you had to wait 40 minutes to get in. Well, they were my fans. Yeah, I'm sure yeah, they yeah. were. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not, not, not everybody waited that long. Um, I'm from The Economist. Um, uh, if you were um, in charge of these negotiations, would you have accepted the sequencing proposed by Barnier, phase one of these three issues, refusal to talk about trade until they're settled? And what would you do if in October, as looks likely, they continue to say you haven't made sufficient progress, we can't talk about trade? Um, 
No, I would not have accepted the phasing. Um, I think that it gave an immediate win to the EU negotiators um, and has put them in a strong position uh, over the summer, uh, leaving us looking intransigent, whereas they were the ones who were intransigent by setting these completely unreasonable conditions because the whole discussion uh, about Ireland depends on trade. And that would sequence them with Northern Ireland before trade makes no sense. And to make money, which is our biggest card before the overall deal, equally makes no sense. Uh, and therefore, this has not made the first few months of the discussion easy. I was going to give both of you a go. So let's just take your two questions one after the other, and then we'll move the mic on. It seems like any transition deal is looking less like a deal and more like an extension of European Union membership for two years. Um, I want to have your thoughts on that. And also, during any transition deal, should we have the ability to sign our free trade deals and actually start benefiting from our vote to leave? Well, I think that hits the number bit, that if we're not allowed to sign free trade deals and we're still subject to the European Court of Justice, we haven't left. And, and my clear dividing line is the jurisdiction of the ICJ. Uh, if the UK, as an independent country, decides that it will continue to observe EU law for a couple of years under our own structures, that is outside the EU. It may not be what I would choose to do, but it is a legitimate decision of a free democratic country. If that is conditional on the ECJ still interpreting our laws, we haven't left, and we have betrayed the voters uh, of June last year. Can I ask, there was a lot of conversation about uh, regulations and protections towards the end there, but there was one element I felt was slightly missed, which was in an independent Britain, in one which we control, um, how much control will we have over our food standards and the quality of what we eat? Um, and how much will we have regulations that ensure that our air is safe to breathe and our, our waters are safe to swim in? And um, how much role do you think we should have in improving those environmental protections once we've left? Um, I think we should be sensible about it. I mean, I think one of the real disgraces, real shocking disgrace, of both the UK government and the European Union uh, was the push for diesel. And the push for diesel knowingly pumped out more nitrous oxide than particulates with health consequences for tens of thousands of people uh, because they were focused on the extra carbon dioxide from petrol. And this was a deeply irresponsible thing to do with deep long-term health effects for many of our fellow citizens. So the EU is not this great bastion of um, fine regulation. It actually was complicit in something to the health of German car manufacturers, as we know, uh, that made our air much worse. And I think we would be freer outside the EU to have these controls. Um, and on animal welfare, likewise, that many people write to me who are against the export of live animals. We would be free to do that outside the European Union. We're not free to do it inside the European Union. You then have to make a choice uh, about what you do with food regulations if you're doing trade deals. Um, dare I say, I'm not the least bit worried about chlorinated chicken. Um, as a frequent visitor to the US in the past, I'm bound to eat quite a lot of chlorinated chicken without noticing. And I did look up the New Zealand report on chlorinated chicken when uh, they were discussing their free trade deal with the US. And they found that nobody had ever had any um, adverse consequences from eating chlorinated chicken, which basically just kills germs. Uh, other than the inspectors who went around to see how the chlorine was um, put on the chickens and they breathed in a bit too much and felt a bit queasy. So unless you're an inspector of chlorination, you'll be absolutely fine with chlorinated chicken. So we don't want to use regulations as second-tier protectionism. 
but we do want to maintain high and proper standards, which we'll be entitled to do. Which is a really interesting distinction though, isn't it? Yes, it is, because you have to work out... You, uh, 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 why I use the chlorinated chicken example? Because everyone thinks chlorinated chicken, how disgusting. And then when you actually look at it, what is it doing is it's killing some quite nasty germs that um, can give you upset stomachs and so on and so forth. It has a purpose, and it has no health consequence for people um, who eat chlorinated chicken. And therefore banning it would, to my mind, purely be um, a, 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 an act of protectionism. On the other hand, if you're going to say that you want the cage sizes that the hens live in before you buy the eggs because you're worried about the animal welfare, that's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. That is a genuine... I, I mean, I've been round various um, uh, hen operations, and um, sometimes the condition of the chickens is pretty troubling, actually, with, with a lot of their feathers gone and, and so on. And mm. I, I think animal welfare is important. And that I think it is, a, it is a difficult distinction, but it is one you can reasonably make. But you can only make it with a proper conversation. Okay. The kind of poll, who here would eat chlorinated chicken other than me? And who wouldn't? Okay, so what I think we should do is have chlorinated chicken with big labels on saying this chicken's been chlorinated, and then the free market could decide. Um, when you were doing the uh, early part of the interview and you were looking at the history and, uh, and what brought people to, to realise that the EU was not where we wanted to stay, um, I used to actually sit in, in the EU offices uh, when I worked for the government uh, on negotiations and that was what actually convinced me that we had to get out. Uh, and I, I worked on the Maastricht referendum campaign. But I think what we really need to do, and I think the important thing that you touched on early on, is that we need to make the case that having the freedom for free trade is in the interests of consumers, and it is the poorest people in the country who will benefit the most. And that is a political issue, and it goes back to the root of what free trade, free markets, and capitalism is all about. And it is a moral case that we should present, and we should present it in a moral fashion. Uh, I entirely agree with that, and I think it is also our response to Jeremy Corbyn that we have had a week of Jeremy Corbyn, and we see from him clear principles from which his policies flow. And we need to explain what are the principles underlying conservatism that will make a success, not just of Brexit, but of our other policy areas. And it's such a powerful argument, only we get out there and make it. And thank you, I entirely agree with you. I mean, the Institute for Fiscal Studies has produced a report that claims that uh, food prices are likely to rise quite significantly as a result of Brexit. And of course, poorer people spend a higher proportion of their income than richer people on food. Because that assumes we apply tariffs in the same way as we currently do. Which, why would we? You know, we currently increase our tariffs on citrus fruits when um, competition against the Spanish exporters is too tight. So we benefit Spanish citrus producers. Why should we do that? It's crazy. We've got to get rid of all of that. Uh, and the, the, all the reports that were done on trade um, before the referendum by official bodies assumed that we would apply WTO tariffs. Why? The whole point is we don't have to. We can cut them and then consumers can benefit. And won't domestic producers be hit who are no longer protected as a result? Well, most, most of our protection is not for UK protect for producers, it's for continental producers. So British consumers are paying to protect Spanish citrus growers, um, French wine growers, um, Italian cheese growers, growers, makers, um, you know, all of that. 
And I have no interest in doing that. I, I want to protect um, some things in the United Kingdom, but those should be done through general taxation. If there's an issue with Welsh hill farmers, we need to work out how we help Welsh hill farmers. And the answer is not simply making land prices to everybody more expensive. Okay. Yeah, I'd like to, first of all, maybe apologise for considering that I'm bringing this back to the protectionist argument, but there seems to be this sort of like fear-mongering attitude from the, the Remain side in terms of standards of goods that are coming in and out of this country and whatnot. But the EU, in, we're talking about the chlorinated chicken, the EU has chlorinated bagged salad, that, uh, and they, that's unregulated, they don't, they're not bothered about that. But to move on from that point, I was more, that wasn't a question, that was more of a point. The question is, the transition deal that we've got coming on, I don't really, um, I don't really trust it because we're going to be staying in the EU as pretty much members in all but name for the next two years with all the regulations and taxations left on us without representation. Whether you could call the EU Parliament real representation anyway is a different matter. The MEPs don't really have much power, but we're not going to have anyone from the Conservatives or UKIP or Labour in, in the EU Parliament whilst they're regulating us anymore, and that's kind of a worrying prospect for me. Um, first of all, it's not the chlorination of the salad that I think is dangerous, it's the salad. Um, I would generally <laughs> generally avoid salad under all possible circumstances. Um, where, where is one there? <laughs> Excellent, good. Um, um, on, on, on your second point, I mean, I think there is a risk. It, it, the the um, nicety between implementation and transition is, is important. Uh, if, if it is uh, an implementation period, but we're genuinely out, but it takes time to get things in place, more on the continent than in the UK, that, that's all right. If it is a transition and we're still in, uh, we won't have any members of the European Parliament post-March 2019, so we will have no representation and still have their rules. That's crazy. That is not possibly in the interests of the United Kingdom uh, and would be, to my mind, a deep failure of the negotiations if that's where we end up. And it's not what I think Florence was pointing towards. Uh, hi, John O'Shaw from Politics. I have two very quick questions. One is, you seem quite worried about the length of the transition deal and it dragging on. Do you want a binding commitment of some kind from the Tory leadership to stop that happening? And uh, linked to that, are you worried that if you and your sceptic colleagues rebel against the leadership, you might precipitate this Corbyn government, which you're so scared of? Um, uh, well, I completely support Theresa May and have done since she became Prime Minister, and that doesn't change. Um, uh, the Florence speech was not my favourite speech of all time, uh, but I can live with Florence as long as, and it's been clarified by David Davis, that we will be out of the ECJ jurisdiction. As long as that remains true, uh, then it's all very livable with. Um, I don't believe in binding guarantees from um, anybody much because uh, they tend out tend neither to be binding nor guarantees more often than not. Uh, but I think we will get the deal, and the deal will say when it will end, and then that will come before Parliament to be accepted or not, and if it's rejected, we leave without a deal. Gentlemen at the back. Sometimes in a negotiation where one side is being incalcitrant and is unwilling to compromise, uh, and you still have an earnest wish to bring that negotiation together, the only way you can do that at that point of the negotiation is to walk away. Um, are we at that point now? And if not, how soon could we be at that point? Um, I don't think we're at that point now. I think that point will come considerably later. I, 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 there are two ways to negotiate. One is to be intransigent and the other is to be generous. And I suppose there's a third way, which is to be both. And I'm really pleased to see that we are now being generous about the things we were always going to be generous about. 
I think we should have done it earlier as it happens, but we've now said we're not going to do anything that will upset the security of Europe. It was quite right. We were never going to do anything that was going to upset the security of Europe. We've now said we're going to be really generous to EU nationals living here, which again we were always going to do. I think it's right to give away things that you are always going to give away to create an atmosphere of friendliness, but it's not right to give away your best cards that are essential to getting the deal in terms of negotiating tactics. And yes, of course, there comes a point at which you say, uh, this isn't getting anywhere, and we're not going to discuss it any further. But I don't think we're there yet. Um, how could the election of a comparatively more centrist Mr Bolton to the UK Independence Party change the game for the Conservative Party's relationship to those who voted leave in the referendum? Um, I don't think very much. Uh, I, I think UKIP is yesterday's force. It's won the referendum and the, the charisma, the capability of Nigel Farage was so much what drove UKIP. And without him, I'd be surprised if UKIP made a great resurgence. Though to be perfectly honest, I know very little about Mr. Bolton. Just assume it's not Adam, hasn't given up Sky News. <laughs> Do you think Theresa May should lead the Conservatives into the next election? Um, I think time will tell. Uh, the, um, the, well, the, do I want her to? Yes, she has my full support, without question. Um, but six months ago, everyone thought Theresa May was the most powerful politician in modern British history, and that Jeremy Corbyn was the biggest joke in modern British political history, and that they were both um, going in opposite directions. And now Jeremy Corbyn is strong, and Theresa May is less so. Politics changes, and it changes remarkably quickly. And so if we get a satisfactory deal come March 2019, Mrs May could be just as strong as she appeared to be in March of this year. Things do change. So when, when you ask that question, any of us who have tried making political forecasts in the last few years have been so routinely wrong that to make a forecast is a mug's game. But do I think it's possible? Yes. Is it what at the moment I wish to happen? Yes. I have to ask you this. Would you like to job at some point in the future? No, um, I, I think like is the wrong word for the Prime Ministership. I think that the Prime Ministership is a job that people, and you see this with Mrs May particularly, so is, is a job done out of duty, not out of, I would like to do this. Uh, and Mrs May is doing her duty, and I fully support her carry on doing that. I, I think like rather trivialises the Prime aspire Ministership. Aspire to it. I don't aspire to it, no. Okay. Yes. Oh, oh, yeah. Marcus Hefliger of Neue Zürcher Zeitung, Swiss Daily. Um, thank you very much. Um, I have a small remark regarding the chlorinated chicken you may want mm -hmm. to comment on and a question. The chlorinated chicken, as far as I know, are chlorinated because their welfare, animal welfare standards are so bad in the US. Uh, the question is about um, whether the reliance on foreign trade deals is maybe not over-optimistic given the present instincts of world leaders as witnessed um, in the um, threat hanging over the um, bombardier workers in Northern Ireland? Um, well, on, on, on the first point, the, the question about whether it's necessary to chlorinate because of the germs that the animals may have picked up and how they've picked up those germs is one to which there isn't a settled opinion. But you're entitled to regulate for animal welfare, as I, as I said. Um, in terms uh, of Bombardier, um, the issue with trade deals is that our biggest trading partner, the United States, we don't have a trade deal with anyway. I think there's too much emphasis on 
uh, on trade deals, that you can trade with lots of countries without having trade deals, and that if by opening up your market, by reducing tariffs unilaterally, you create a better feeling of friendship between your trading partners, that's a very good start. Um, and you do see that lots of countries want to make trade deals, but they find that doing so with the European Union is amazingly cumbersome and long-winded and gets voted down by the balloons. Um, uh, uh, and I don't think um, this is going to happen in this country. The people of Somerset are not going to be consulted on the trade deals. It's going to be a straightforward parliamentary uh, and governmental process. So I think we can do things relatively quickly if there's goodwill on both sides. But you've always found that countries have particular sensitivities in certain areas. Uh, and Boeing is one of the US sensitivities. We've got time for one more, if anyone has got one more question. Anyone at all? Thank you. Um, Chris Sutton, Hornchurch and Upminster. Um, on Brexit, we were 70% uh, leave, and that was uniformly across each of our wards, and 30% remain. Um, the, the question I want to put to Jacob, if I may, is during the election, there was no mention of the economy, and yet seven years ago, uh, sitting in the very seat you're sitting in now, only only a, uh, maybe an hour or so ago, was um, was pretty Patel, and she described that as a, a cataclysmic time uh, in the, in global economy, and and yet we've nursed our way through it and we've come out the other side, and we're still a very very strong trading nation, and all reasons for people to want to be here, um, including the hugest amount of inward investment in the last 12 months in our history. So why was there no mention of our economy during the election? <laughs> That is a different subject from tonight's about what went wrong with the general election. Um, how long you've got? I mean, do you want to start all over again? Uh, I, I think everybody accepts, and, and there's a report out today, that the election campaign was not our finest hour, uh, and that mistakes were made in the um, presentation and tone of the campaign on the subjects we decided to focus on. Uh, and I think in future elections we must do better, and we must focus on... You see, I, I think what you really need is to lay out what conservative principles are, and from that the policies grow. And what we did was the other way around. We had a whole string of perfectly sensible policies, but no thread connecting them. And without the thread, it didn't look as if there was a coherent whole. And it may be that it was all done too quickly, there wasn't the time, but I hope that we will set out, and I thought Mrs May's speech uh, last week on the advantages of capitalism was beginning to do this, set out principles of why we're conservative and then policies flow rather than just this sounds like a nice policy as does that so let's put a few um, bonbons in a jar and pick them out and I think that was a problem with the election. So you want some big ideas to bind things together? Well I also like some um, rhubarb and custard bonbons if anyone's going to give them. <laughs> <laughs> On that note it remains for me simply to thank Conservative Home once again for being such great partners. Thank you all for coming and finally thank you Mr Rees-Mogg for coming.